Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. Matt Ridley is a British journalist and businessman who's best known for his writings on science, the environment and economics. His books include The Red Queen, Genome and The Rational Optimist. Matt joined me on the Quillette podcast to talk about his latest book, How Innovation Works. But before we got onto that, we discussed the coronavirus and why so many Western countries seem unprepared for a viral pandemic on this scale. He spoke to me from his house in Northumberland, where he's currently self-isolating. I'm sitting in my linen cupboard, which I've turned into a recording studio because tomorrow I'm recording my book. Yes, I saw a picture of your homemade recording studio on, on Twitter. It looks very impressive. Just duvets galore, but it's, it's great. I, I could sort of live in here, you know, it's sort of quiet. First of all, t- tell me how you are. Um, symptom-free? <laughs> I'm symptom-free and completely fine, but pretty alarmed about what the world is going to uh, experience over the next six months. Yes. Uh, either economically or medically or possibly both, we're going to get a really nasty hit, much worse than I thought was possible. Yes. Uh, and, and and you say that as someone who has been fairly... Uh, well, you've been you've been sort of sounding the alarm about the risk of a viral pandemic for for a bit, haven't you? Well, yes and no. I wouldn't want to claim to be uh, completely um, alarmed about viral pandemics for years, but about this one, I've not ruled out that this could get frightening for a few months. And when I look back at what I said twenty years ago. Um, uh, I, 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 on the whole, was relatively reassured that we were getting better and better at dealing with viruses uh, through vaccines and public health measures. Um, but I did put in a caveat that there are zoonoses, viruses that jump out of animals, that threaten us from time to time. And some of them are very lethal, usually too lethal for their own good. But given the speed with which respiratory viruses are able to travel the world, particularly in the form of the common cold, one of the causes of which is a coronavirus, um, it was not impossible that a zoonosis from bats in particular, because they gather in large groups like we do, that was both contagious and lethal and easily transmitted by asymptomatic carriers, so it could really go pandemic. That just might happen. And I wish I'd been more forthright in saying that that's almost likely to happen. Turns out it was it was genuinely possible for this this to happen. Um, and I, I, you know, I think the world has underestimated it and didn't take the warnings from SARS and other uh, and HIV to some extent, which although has, has a much less dangerous, less contagious transmission mechanism, did probable of going global um, uh, 
And the other thing I think that I've underestimated and I've not appreciated is that I thought vaccine development was improving dramatically um, because of the ability to do messenger RNA va vaccines, because of the ability to read the genome of a, of a new uh, germ very quickly. Um, I was sort of under the impression we could probably in a crisis bang out a vaccine in a few weeks. Uh, and I got that wrong. It turns out that is still a laborious, slow and difficult process. So we have been running a huge risk as a global traveling society for decades now. And many of us didn't realize that, including myself. I'm not claiming to be um, a, a good forecaster of this. Um, does that mean you're um, skeptical about how quickly a vaccine will become available? I mean, I think the 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 view of um, the chief scientific advisor and the chief medical officer, as far as I understand it, is that it will be at least 18 months before um, a safe vaccine is widely available. I, I suspect that's about right. It might we might do better than that, but I don't think we can guarantee to do better than that. Indeed, we can't guarantee to get a vaccine to this virus at all because uh, some of these viruses, you know, for, for, for reasons that are not entirely clear, some viruses you can develop vaccines to and others you can't. You know, we've tried for a long time with the common cold and we've never been able to come up with one. Influenza, we have vaccines that work for a while, but only against certain strains. Um, and uh, so although you can, uh, you know, HIV is another example where we've been trying to find a vaccine for a long time uh, and it looks like we're getting close, but it's been a long time coming. So uh, it's not certain. That said, um, a vaccine has entered human trials for COVID-19 already in uh, Seattle, uh, I believe. Uh, and that's pretty quick. And that's very exciting. And uh, it's being used on healthy volunteers to see if it raises immunity and to see if it's safe. But it's the ramping up of the production of a, of a vaccine that is surprisingly slow still. So I think even if that trial proves uh, unusually successful, we're still many months away, at least a year away from a practical vaccine, it seems. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it, there's a lot of uncertainty still. And how optimistic or pessimistic you are about um, the production of a vaccine um, seems to in turn feed into whether you are um, a suppressor or a mitigator. Uh, one of the arguments for suppression is if we can just suppress it for 18 months, possibly a bit longer, by that time a vaccine will become available and we can avoid the worst of this disease. We can get over this pandemic without... 80% of the global population becoming infected. Whereas those who are more skeptical about a vaccine tend to think that mitigation is the more practical strategy. Where are you on the kind of mitigator suppressor debate? I, I think I'm a suppressor. Uh, I became more concerned about the government's, uh, the British government's strategy last week, um, as did a lot of people. Uh, on the grounds that the logic was that the models were showing that if you suppressed now, you would get a second wave later. 
And that was difficult because you can't persuade people to go into curfew a second time round. That seemed to be the behavioral logic. But it gradually became clear because of the Italian experience that a managed peak, a sort of mitigated epidemic in which you allowed enough people to get it, but not so many that you overwhelmed the, the health service was a very, very tricky needle to thread. And that it was actually far more likely that even this managed peak would kill an awful lot of people and overwhelm the, the, the health service. And that, I gather, is what the Imperial College models are, are, are saying. And that's why, in effect, the government has gone back to suppression. This argument that we'd left the contain phase and must enter the delay phase in which we were allowing inevitable spread but hoping that it wasn't too bad and slowing the rate of it through social distancing didn't seem to work in practice. Uh, and I'm not trying to blame anyone for that. Um, uh, and I, you know, I think the government was doing the best it could. But I think we have learned that uh, we've got to try and suppress this thing. And if that means that after a few months we have suppressed it and people are saying, well, please can we get back to normal because now everybody's unemployed and the economy has crashed and we're in a terrible recession and debt is spiraling, then we have to, yes, take the shackles off the economy a bit and try and get back to normal. And we may then face a second resurgence of the virus, at which point we may have to bring back the social distancing. And that might be very, very difficult. But hopefully by then we'll have just that little bit more in the way of resources in the National Health Service, uh, just that, that little bit more in the number of people who have been through the virus and can therefore work with the elderly and with vulnerable people as volunteers or as employed people. So it the second wave may not be quite as painful as the first, but I'm afraid I think we are seeing a succession of waves in which we have to shut down normal economic activity pretty drastically several times. That seems to be the most likely outcome at the moment. And do you have a sense of what variable in the um, government's model changed to shift them from a strategy of mitigation to suppression. If you read the report published by the team at Imperial College yesterday, it looks like the key variable is um, that the government underestimated the demand for ICU beds. Um, and that now that we have a better picture of what the NHS's surge capacity is because we've been living with the virus for a few weeks and because we've got the Italian experience to draw on, um, we now have a more accurate idea of what our ICU capacity is. Is that the key variable that's, uh, that's changed the government strategy? I, I, I think that's exactly right. But again, I'm only relying on what I'm reading, particularly that Imperial College paper. And it, it it, it seems like in Italy, more people ended up needing intensive care than originally expected. Uh, and more of those uh, stayed longer in intensive care. Indeed, more of them died than, than expected. And, you know, based on the Asian experience, it seemed to be worse in Italy. 
Now, whether that was something to do with our healthcare system or something to do with the genetics of the population, it might be, uh, we don't know. But it would, it, 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 it looks likely that the British experience was going to follow the Italian experience rather quicker than expected and rather more severely than we had originally hoped. So uh, I, I think that's what's changed. And we're all of us having to change our minds. And I think we've got to stop or, or not get into the habit of blaming people for having to change their plans uh, as this goes along. Um, uh, the, the Imperial College people say that they think Britain has brought these things in at the right time. We are experiencing still a lesser epidemic than most uh, continental European countries. Um, so it's possible we may just catch it in time. But catching an exponential before it takes off is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Uh, and for me, the exponential nature of an epidemic is what makes it stand out dramatically from all the other risks we talk about, including things like climate change. Um, uh, and why we should have been much more prepared for this. Singapore built a hospital for this sort of eventuality after SARS. Uh, South Korea um, greatly increased its capacity to handle data and to do contact tracing and indeed to do testing. Uh, and it feels like of all the, the, the black swan risks we should have been fretting about over the last 10 or 20 years we haven't done nearly enough on this the Wellcome Trust did set up this Centre for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation uh, with the help of the Norwegian and Indian governments and the Gates Foundation and it was a really good initiative and they set it up in 2017 um, after Ebola uh, but it hasn't yet got to the point where it has produced results to be in time for us that's something that I think we now regret. You know, here am I, an optimist, who says that most risks are exaggerated, and I think that's true. But I think one of the problems is focusing on the wrong risks. Uh, you know, I that was one of the lessons of the financial crisis, focusing on credit risk, not liquidity risk, for example, turned out to be a mistake in the case of some banks. And, uh, you know, if the government is pushing money and interest and uh, concern in one direction it can end up neglecting another direction uh, and you know that effectively going on and on and on about how uh, a relatively slow and slight and non-exponential warming of the world that will have a big effect in a few decades time is the greatest crisis humanity is ever facing turned out wrong advice We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which we'll resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. 
Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. Why do you think it is that um, we have elevated some risks and downplayed others? Um, I mean, the, the, the climate change alarmists claim that uh, they, they often claim the authority of science and talk about a scientific consensus. Um, uh, but if, if, if actually the science has been telling us that a viral pandemic like the one we're currently experiencing poses a greater threat to humanity than global warming, why, why hasn't that message sunk in? Why, why have people latched onto the wrong risk? Well, uh, I, I think there is no scientific consensus about the future. Um, uh, we can have a scientific consensus about the facts, things that have happened and are happening. To, uh, to have a consensus about a forecast is not possible. And actually, if you read the, uh, the scientific papers on climate change, they very clearly give a range of outcomes from harmless to harmful. You know, one degree of warming to four degrees of warming, very roughly speaking, uh, during this century. One degree of warming is not uh, a problem. Four degrees of warming is a huge problem. So to say there is one scientific consensus has always been a mistake. And I've always tried to, to combat that argument. The science says, well, what do you mean by the science? The science gives you a, a range of outcomes. Um, uh, that said... I do believe in using science to try and understand the range of possible outcomes. And uh, yes, science has said a global pandemic is a risk we should take into account, but it hasn't shouted it from the rooftops, we now know, as much as it perhaps should have done. Why is that? Well, I'm partly guilty of this myself, of downplaying it, on the grounds that it looked likely after... Uh, MERS and SARS and Zika and and uh, uh, lots of other uh, potential pandemics that the modern modern society was set up in such a way that that a lot of methods of transmission weren't possible, and the one that was possible, respiratory infection, uh, was effectively liable to produce very mild diseases so there are some 200 different virus strains that can produce a common cold we all get common colds every winter even flu is usually not that lethal we fell into the trap of of the scientifically rational thinking that the existing world suggested that a lethal pandemic was unlikely and it turned out that uh, there is a small probability of a very big risk happening and that that has now happened so it's very i mean why why do we focus on the wrong risks was your question and um uh, and i'm sorry to say that a huge amount of uh, money and self-interest develops behind particular risks and not behind others um uh, and it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy that this is what everybody uh, everybody talks about uh, and throughout my life i've since i 
you know, first became an adult and got scared about the environmental future of the planet because I thought the oil was running out. Uh, and I thought the population explosion was accelerating, where in fact it was already decelerating. Uh, and I thought uh, that uh, the deserts were advancing and the species were going extinct and uh, the ozone layer was disappearing and the rainforests were vanishing. And all of these were true scientifically, but all turned out to be threats that were relatively slow and relatively diminishing over time uh, and that we were wrong to panic about them. But it turns out ones that could accelerate rapidly include pandemics. And that, I think, is the factor that's been missing. So tell us about your new book, Matt. Well, my new book <laughs> uh, is called How Innovation Works. Uh, and it's mostly about the past, not the future. That is to say, I tell stories. I tell stories about steam engines and search engines, about uh, vaccines and vaping, about farming and fission, all things that were innovated, that were not just invented, but uh, developed in such a way that they became ubiquitous and affordable and easily usable for people. Um, and I tell these stories to try and bring out the, the themes of what it is that makes this mysterious process of innovation uh, crucial to human, hu human well-being. Um, uh, because I think it is mysterious. It's an incredibly important process. It's what it's what gives us all of the good things of life is innovation. It's continuous. We rely on it. And yet we don't really know why it happens when and where it does, why it happens in some sectors and not others, uh, why it happens in some countries and not others. Um, and so I'm trying to draw out some 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 lessons for people to learn about that process. And, and what are your conclusions? Um, and are, is there any practical advice you can give to governments about how to, um, how to increase the number of innovations? Yeah, well, there are several. Uh, one is innovation is not the same as invention. Uh, invention is the coming up with a new device. Innovation is when you make that device um, available to everybody. And that process, the sort of downstream process, the process that Thomas Edison and Jeff Bezos did, rather than you know the uh, the, the sort of eureka moment of Archimedes, um, that process is something that needs more nurturing in most societies. We're quite good, particularly in Britain, at coming up with new ideas. We're not very good at turning those new ideas into practical realities. Uh, and we've got worse over the years, actually. Society, but there's evidence that we've got a bit of an innovation famine at the moment, that it's it's pretty hard to take ideas and turn them into, into realities. And that's partly because there's resistance. There's resistance from people. Uh, I have a long half chapter on why coffee took such a long time to get it established in the West. A lot of rulers uh, didn't like it. A lot of the wine industry didn't like it. Rulers didn't like it because people gathered in coffee shops and started talking about how bad the ruler was. That was that was the problem there. Um, uh, but it's amazing the efforts to suppress coffee and how successful they were in some countries and some places for a long time. Uh, and yet eventually it, it succeeded incumbent industries try and stop things coming in so for example the pharmaceutical industry has been waging quite a strong war to prevent the vaping industry get established because the pharmaceutical industry has got a monopoly on uh, non-tobacco nicotine products uh, or had one uh, until recently um, so uh, there are huge vested interests ranged against uh, uh, innovation and the other 
lesson I, I sort of learned is that it's a bottom-up collaborative process. It's not about a genius sitting in a, uh, an ivory tower coming up with an idea. It's very much about the cross-fertilization of ideas. It's very much more gradual than we think. Moore's law is the perfect example of how innovation marches rather steadily forward. It doesn't jump ahead in great leaps the way we think it does. It's not as disruptive as we think it is. It's much, most of the time it's gradual. Governments aren't very good at it. So if you think about the origin of flight, for example, the American government poured a lot of money into uh, a very grand elite engineer who was going to develop flight. And he took to the air, or rather his pilot took to the air, um, just a couple of weeks before the Wright brothers did and crashed immediately into the Potomac River with a disastrous effect. The pilot was fine, but the machine never went more than about 50 yards. Um, uh, and that was an enormously expensive process. Uh, whereas the Wright brothers had been tinkering away without any support at all from the government uh, and doing the right thing, which is tinkering, gradually improving technology, learning from their experiments, trial and error, trial and error, again and again and again. Uh, and nobody believed them. Everybody said, that, well, come on, they're just a couple of bicycle makers from Ohio. How can they have possibly invented an aeroplane? took them a long time to persuade anyone. And they wrote to the government and said, please, will you now support us? We could help give you an air force. And the government said, no, certainly not. We've learned our lesson on flight. So that's just a nice little parable for how how bad government is at picking winners when it's doing innovation. And the current British government um, seems to have um, uh, seems to be wanting to go big on invention and innovation. And there was uh, quite a lot of money announced in the recent budget for research, development, science. Um, were you encouraged by all of that? Yes and no. Uh, I think it's good that the government recognises that innovation is a something that it must devote some of its enormous uh, budget to. I mean, if the government's going to take 40% of our income, then better that it spends some of it on innovation than none of it on innovation. Um, uh, and yes, there are things government can do. It can set standards. Uh, it can set regulations in a way that they encourage innovation. Uh, and it can... Uh, provide seed corn for some of the discoveries that are crucial along the way. As we saw with with various uh, things like DARPA in the United States, it is possible for government to play uh, a crucial role in some of the technologies that go on to be developed. As I say, it would be extraordinary if they didn't because they spend so much of the money that's spent in the world. But I think the UK government's plan is a little too devoted to the upstream end, the invention end rather than the innovation end, is a little too uh, enthralled to what the public sector can do and is a little too keen on the old habit of picking winners, saying, well, it's this sector we need to invent, innovate in, it's this technology we need to champion. Um, uh, everybody pays lip service to saying that they don't pick winners, but everybody keeps doing it. Uh, so I, I'd much I'd, I'd like to see it be a little more open to a sort of how do we clear the undergrowth out the way to let a thousand flowers flourish in this world of innovation without even trying to guess what those innovations will be. A good example of this is gene editing in agriculture, which is a process that uh, has enormous promise and which at the moment is impossible to do under European Union regulations 
All we have to do is sweep those out of the way, bring in the same kind of regulations that America and China have on this. But instead of seeing our innovation policy as a one of getting stuff out of the way of innovators, we tend to see it as one of subsidizing or directing innovators. And that, I think, is is a mistake. You mentioned um, the difficulty of innovating when it comes to gene editing in agriculture uh, within the EU because of the regulatory thicket in that area. Um, And this was one of the arguments for Brexit, that um, if we leave the EU and are no longer bound by um, what appear to be anti-innovation regulations, an excessive application of the precautionary principle, uh, we will be able to surge ahead and become a more innovative country. Is that one of the arguments that persuaded you to support Brexit? It was actually the chief argument that persuaded me. I mean, I read this in the Times early on before the referendum saying, here's the main reason why I think I'm going to be voting leave. Uh, It's because in the end, this is a continent that is not a continent, a a, a, uh, political system that has set itself up to favour incumbents against innovators. And that's a mistake because innovation is where growth and prosperity come from. Um, And there are several examples, the GDPR and other things which have made it very difficult to uh, produce a uh, a digital giant in the European Union um, and have on the whole made us lag behind both Asia and America in in the digital economy. Um, But perhaps the best example is what happened to Sir James Dyson. Uh, He invented a bagless vacuum cleaner and he found that the European Union had written rules for vacuum cleaners that said they must be tested without dust in them, unlike anywhere in the world. And this was to suit the big German manufacturers of vacuum cleaners who realized that their products worked less well when they were half full of dust um, than his did and they wanted to kill his Um, he had to go to court Uh, he lost initially Um, he got freedom of information to find out what information had been sent to the court and found an absolute treasure trove of crony capitalist corrupt uh, correspondence Um, uh, and so he appealed and he won after about five years he completely won his case but by then the Chinese had caught up and his innovative technology was nothing like the advantage that it would have been if he'd been able to get get it through early. I mean, it, you know, it was a, a stark, staring, crazy example uh, of allowing incumbents to lobby a political system in Brussels to prevent an innovation threatening their uh, quasi-monopoly. When you were writing this book, I was reading Little Dorrit and um, uh, came across the Circumlocution Office, which uh, is a sort of satirical invention of Dickens's, which uh, is a a sort of Whitehall department, um, which is set up exclusively for the purpose of suppressing inventions and innovations. Oh, my God, I wish I'd known about that. I thought thought I tipped you off about it. (laughs) You probably did. You probably did, and I probably forgot. Uh, well. Never mind. Um, well, Matt, look, really good to talk to you. Um, uh, h- how long are you going to be self-isolating for? It sounds like you are self-isolating. No, I'm sort of semi-self-isolating. That is to say, uh, I'm staying in Northumberland because I don't want to get stuck somewhere else uh, away from home. Um, I'm social distancing. You know, I'm not going to deliberately go to gatherings. Um, I think I'm 
I, I think those of us who can work from home probably should be doing so, so that those of us who can't can continue to do so. I mean, I think, you know, one of one of the things we've got to do is not think about ourselves, but about think about what we can do to to help society get through this and, and help those who, who have greater needs get through it. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content. <laughs>